Sometimes you can see things from great heights that you can't see when you're kind of down below in the midst of things. If you've ever climbed up on a mountain or fly up in an airplane or a helicopter or something, you get a different perspective when you have the bird's eye view. It's a little different. It's interesting. There's, a, there's even been some documentaries of people who, archaeologists are using the satellites and like things like Google Earth and so forth. If you ever use Google Earth, looking even at your own house, like, wow, that's my, my house looks different looking using Google Earth, doesn't it? Funny perspective when you're way up there. And now uh, that's what we're going to do today with Genesis, kind of get a bird's eye view, so, uh, so to speak, and get up and way up, see it from that perspective. This is an important book. It's the book of beginnings. And why is it important to study the beginnings? We're carefully studying the history of something, particularly the beginning of something. Well, it would be very helpful. It allows you to know its ultimate outcome before it even happens. So you know you know what's going to happen in the Bible when you study the beginnings. They're important. They're significant. They can reveal everything from direction to purpose, from the methods to the motives. And this is why you ought to study this first book of your Bible. The book of beginnings we call Genesis. And so let me just introduce it very, very quickly, and then we'll kind of dive in and look at some themes here in a moment. But the story of the book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Well, beginnings of what? Well, it it tells us, number one, the basic storyline goes like this. starts with God. Now, this is not the beginning of God. God has no beginning. Okay, you understand. But we see in the beginning... God. What does He do? He creates. He creates the entire universe. Everything in the universe created here. Including the first man and the first woman. Mankind comes here in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve are your mother and father. Sadly, they didn't obey God and they fell. And so we call this the fall of mankind into sin. And then you come into Genesis chapters 4 through 11 and it's All about people. Well, not all, but there's a lot of people. So it covers this time period from the first man, Adam, to this man, Abraham, and it includes some pretty destructive things like the flood and the Tower of Babel. And then you get into Genesis 12 through 50, and it's focusing on Abraham and his family. And so chapters 12 through 25 is about Abraham, the father of Israel, and then it gets into Abraham's grandson, who's uh, uh, focusing on Jacob, chapters 26 through 36. And then Jacob's son, Joseph, is mostly talked about there in chapters 37 through 50. It's a wonderful book, if you like this sort of thing, book of beginnings. So it's getting us from creation to the starting point of what is called the Exodus. We, we find God's chosen people in slavery in Egypt. And it's an Exodus there. We're going to see finally, finally, God's people are going to be brought into God's land, the land of Israel. So what we're going to do today is kind of look around the whole book here, divide it into these two parts. Uh, you can see this next screen here, dividing the book of Genesis up into two parts. You've got the first part running from chapter 1 into chapter 11, those first 11 chapters. It's about God creating the world and the whole human race and, and all the things in this universe. And, of course, the main characters there would be Adam and Noah. But, yes, even though those are the main People characters, of course, don't lose sight of God in the midst of this. And then you get into the second part, chapters 12 through 50. It's, it's uh, what, what it's doing there, think of a camera kind of zooming in with this huge lens, and it's stopping to look at the whole human race, but it's, it's, it's doing it not, not so much through the whole human race, but it's doing it through this people group, one particular family. Why is it doing this? Because God chose this particular family and He redeemed them out of the world for His own glory. And what is He doing with them? He's accomplishing His purposes through 
Abraham's family. And so the main characters there, of course, would be Abraham and his son Isaac, and then his Isaac's son Jacob and Jacob's son Joseph. And that's the book of Genesis in simplified form. Now, obviously, we're not going to have time to dig in deep right now, so we're just kind of getting the bird's eye view at the moment. But, but I don't want us to see these, the key lessons we're intended to learn about God and, and, and then miss, and miss God and miss ourselves in the midst of this, okay? So in both parts of this book, we're going to consider the display of God's holiness and judgment on sin. We're going to see that God is not just a God of judgment, but He's also a God of mercy. Yes, even in the Old Testament, we see God's mercy and grace even in the midst of judgment. But He's also a sovereign God who reigns supreme over all of His creation. And by following uh, we're going to follow that, and then, and in the midst of that, we're going to see how do we respond to that kind of a God. There's certainly other things that we could could talk about, but I think those themes give us the big picture of the book of Genesis. I believe this is what God intends for us to learn. Number one, what do, what do we see about God? What do we learn about God? What is God doing with this amazing book? He's displaying His character. It's all about God, and He's displaying His character through this amazing universe that we see Him creating in Genesis 1 and 2. So the Bible clearly does not have a lot to say uh, about several thousand years of human history, particularly before the Tower of Babel history. But nevertheless, God has given us some history here, and, and out of that we can learn some things. Obviously, if He's left... A lot of human history out. We don't need to know that. But God has given us what we do need to know. And in this section, the most important stories He's given us in chapters 1 through 11 is that He's created the universe. But mankind chose to fall and disobeyed God. A lot of consequences coming out of that. We'll talk about that in the days to come. But we have the first children who. Uh, who we, we see issues with them, Cain and Abel, coming from Adam and Eve. We have the first murder, Cain kills his brother Abel. And then eventually we get to Noah, and then the, God describes the, the earth as wicked, and so God judges it with a worldwide flood, but yet God chooses to, he chooses to save eight people. And then eventually they uh, kind of rebuild, and then eventually they come to the Tower of Babel, and we see where all the languages come from. God scatters them across the face of the earth. So whenever you're reading or teaching those kind of stories, please try to grasp the fundamental matters about God. See, it's not all about us. Too often people teach these to their children or someone else's children or to yourself, and we like to make application and turn Scripture into a bunch of moralisms. The first among these matters must certainly be we see that God is self-existent. What I'm saying is that nobody created God. In the beginning, God. So, He's not dependent upon you. He's not dependent upon anything else. And it's important to note that the magnificence of God's creation is not the focus of Genesis. It's amazing, but don't lose sight of the Creator in the midst of the creation. God is the focus here. And here's the warning, my friends. Don't lose sight of God. I heard, uh, well, I read an author say one time that the Old Testament stories is a declaration by God of God. It's a declaration by God of God. In other words, God's speaking, and He wants you to know Him. Don't lose sight of Him. So here's what we can learn about God. Number one, that God is holy and He judges sin. So when God is holy, we mean He's unique. In the first place in Genesis where you can clearly observe God's holiness, His uniqueness, His commitment to condemn those who sin against Him is right here in chapter 3. Because Before that, everything was good. And we come to chapter 3 and we see there's some things that aren't good. This is the first encounter, first sin. Adam and Eve sinned. How did they sin? They disobeyed God. 
God said you can do, you, you can do anything in, almost anything in his garden. You can get, eat of anything in this garden. There's just one tree over there. Don't eat that one tree. And they go and eat from the forbidden tree. And so here we, chapter 3, we see God keeping his word. Chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What's God doing? Judging sin. God's commitment to good and right continues throughout the book of Genesis, not just here. We we even see this in the the climax of the flood in chapter 7. Many of you might know that story, the story of Noah and the ark and how God saved eight people. And, of course, this story gets sentimentalized. All kinds of pictures and art and even toys. (laughs) And all of those things, uh, unfortunately usually don't accurately represent what God did here in the Bible. Particularly the newest movie, by the way, if, if you've seen the newest movie about Noah. Let me, if you haven't, let me give, give you a heads up. Sorry, warning here. Uh, I heard the director say before the movie even came out, I want to make the most unbiblical biblical movie that's ever been made. And I went and watched it with a pastor friend, and we both walked out and said, mission accomplished. It was a rubbish movie. So if you think you want to watch a good biblical movie, don't watch that one. You'll find plenty of things that's not biblical about it. But nevertheless, the the flood's one of the greatest judgments in the Bible. It's a horrible calamity in which God brings all this water and destroys the entire human race, minus eight people. You need to understand, Noah's Ark was not a toy you play with in your bathtub. These these rising waters were not warm bath water. And God said, I'm going to cover the entire earth, and this is an expression of my wrath against sin. I want you to see how God describes the sinful people here whom he destroys with a worldwide flood in chapter 8, verse 21. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. Verse 21 says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now the phrase I wanted you to notice, notice what God says, I, or sorry, the intention of man's heart is what? Evil. Evil. Theologians call that total depravity. (laughs) You say, what is total depravity? There's a lot of misconceptions on this, so let's be clear. What is total depravity? Why is this important for you to know? I'm going to answer that question by looking at the why first. Why do you need to know what total depravity is? Well, the view that you take concerning salvation, your eternal life, is going to be determined to a large extent by the view that you take concerning your nature, man's very nature. How do you view that? Do you see it as something that's corrupt, perverse, and sinful? Well, if you see it that way, you're going to see your salvation a little differently, very differently. But what is total depravity? It just means that mankind's nature is corrupt and perverse. It's sinful through and through. It does not mean that each sinner is as totally as corrupt as they could be. Praise God, there is such a thing called common grace. Not all of us, uh, in fact, none of us, sin as much as we could. 
So that's not what it means. But the word total here is used to indicate that the whole of man's being is affected by sin. In other words, your body is affected by sin. Your mind is affected by sin. Your will is affected by sin. Your emotions are affected by sin. Everything about you is affected by sin. It's a total radical corruption. And the corruption extends to every part of you, including your soul and body. It affects all of our faculties, even our mind and our will. So God says your, your heart is evil. You need to understand that. From the beginning here, at least in, from Genesis chapter 3, we're evil. As a friend, if you are not a true child of God and a true believer, never put your faith in Christ alone, then I'm imploring you to take the time to read these few first few chapters of Genesis here. So you're going to find the message proclaimed here that, number one, there is a God in the beginning God. He made you. He, he's made you, by the way, with meaning and purpose. So you have a purpose in life. And you and I have failed to live up to that purpose He made us for. He loves you. But we haven't loved Him as we should. So the Bible teaches us there is a judgment for sin because God is holy. He is unique. But number two, what else do we learn about God? We see, we see here that Genesis teaches us that God is merciful. So I love this truth. When you see God's judgment, look for His grace. So mercy and grace are kind of similar. I like to think of grace as God giving us what we don't deserve, mercies where God doesn't give us what we do deserve. And so we can thank God that we not only find His holiness displayed here in Genesis, but we also find His mercy displayed. Praise God. So God is not just a God of wrath. Unbelievers, the new atheists in particular, love to attack God, love to attack the Old Testament and say, I hate God because of His wrath. Well, He's not just wrath. He's more than that. He's also mercy and grace. So while God pronounces His judgment on the first sin, He offered a glimpse of hope here. We see hope. How do we see this hope? Well, I want, look at chapter 3. See chapter 3. So here at, at the, uh, the, the fall of mankind, what does God promise the offspring of the woman? This is referring to Eve, the first woman. Her offspring, there comes a promise. In chapter 3, verse 15, it says, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's between Satan and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a promise. There is hope in the midst of all of these curses here in chapter 3. Okay? So do you see God's mercy? God is not going to give what He deserves, what they deserve. I'll give you another example. After the judgment of the flood, God promised to remember the covenant that He made with Noah and his offspring. And so in the midst of all of God's wrath, God still remembers mercy. Look at chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 15. Look at chapter 9, verse 15. God says, I will remember my covenant that is made between me and you. That's Noah. And every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow, that's a rainbow, is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So, my friends, it's important for you to see God's mercy as a part of the Bible's basic picture of God. God is not just wrath. He's not just holiness. And so we cannot and we should not just speak of His holiness and perfection and not also speak of His mercy. These first chapters of Genesis present no hope for the human race apart from God's mercy. The Holy One here is also one who is merciful. 
You say, well, how, how is that? How can a holy God do this? How can He do this? Well, the answer is in the third part. God's not just holy, but God is also sovereign. He is sovereign. This truth, by the way, should not surprise you. After all, God has made everything in His universe. He owns it all. And the author of all has the authority over all. And in this third chapter of Genesis, don't turn there, but turn to chapter 7. But in the third chapter of Genesis, we see God is able and has the authority to judge what He owns. That's why He brings out all those curses there in chapter 3. And by the way, if you have any doubt whatsoever in your mind that God has this kind of authority, I want you to see what chapter 7 says. God has the authority, all sovereignty, to do this. So look what he says, chapter 7, verse 21. 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So what should you learn from the story of Noah and this worldwide flood and what God did here? Well, first of all, we should learn that you cannot just arrogantly ignore God and His claims. You can't ignore God. He is holy. He is unique. He's committed to vindicating His name. And how does He do that? He will judge sin. Sin is attack against God's very character. Second, if God's made promises to us, then you can be certain that God, number one, has the power to fulfill those promises. He has the authority to keep His promises. So watch for those promises that He makes. Now, we need to have a response to Scripture. We need to have a response to the book of Genesis. What response does God want you to have to the book of Genesis? Two things. Obedience and faith. That's at least two things you should come away with from the book of Genesis. In other words, you need to believe God's words. If God says it, you need to believe it, and then you need to obey it. Well, early on, we see Adam and Eve. What do they do? They failed to obey. They failed to believe. And then we see one of Adam and Eve's sons failing to obey and believe. I'm talking about Cain. And then we move on to Noah's day, and what do we do? We see people failing to believe and obey God. Fortunately, there's a good example in the Bible. You can look at chapter 6 here. And we see Noah, by God's grace, he is a counterexample. He's not like everyone else. And because of that, because he is unique in this way, holy in that way, he, he sticks out in a good way. And so you read chapter 6 and 7, and you notice, hopefully you notice, a righteous man by the name of Noah. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9 says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. Look at chapter, uh, sorry, same chapter, look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. So God makes a covenant with Noah. God tells him to build this huge, this, this boat, we call an ark. And so we see here that God... Uh, Noah did it. He he does what God commanded him to do. And then look at chapter five or seven. Chapter seven, verse five. Verse five says, Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. So what's Noah doing? He has faith 
and he obeys. He has faith and he obeys. By the way, that's the way your life should look too. Your life should be a life of faith and obedience before God, just as Noah's was. By the way, think about this. How could Noah live a comparatively righteous life in a world that was mess? It was a mess. Some people look at Noah and say, well, he's just better than other people. He's, he, you know, he's like the superstar, super holy kind of a guy that no one else can attain. Well, no, he wasn't. He just simply believed the promises of God that God had given to him, and he responds to God in obedience. He had faith. He trusted God's words because he believed that God's words were true, and he needed to obey them. It's, it's just that simple. So Noah assumes that God's telling him the truth. Now, why else would somebody work on a boat for 120 years? You tell me. And then he goes and preaches during that time because he's described as a preacher of righteousness. He preaches for all that time too and no one comes to faith in Christ during that time except his family. So he's doing all this for 120 years. And, and by the way, nobody's ever seen rain. Imagine that. What would your neighbors think if they saw you for 120 years building something, a boat, when they've never seen rain? What would they think of you? And so this is what he's doing. And so he's listed in the Hall of Faith of Hebrews 11, verse 7. Look what it says. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So question for you, my friends. What is the most crucial event in the Bible that happens between the fall of Adam and the birth of Jesus Christ? What would you say? What say you? So fall of Adam to the birth of Christ. What would you say is the most important event? Well, I would try to get you to believe that the answer to that question is actually in chapter 12. Chapter 12, we have God calling a man named Abram. And this call sets off the story of the rest of the Bible. The entire rest of the Bible hinges here on chapter 12. Here the camera zooms in on one family. A man named Abram. And so the entire second section of the book of Genesis has to do with this man's family line. So chapters 12 through 50 tell us that God displays His character through His special people. It's all about particularly four different people. We call them patriarchs. And so what do we learn again from the patriarchs? We learn Genesis teaches us that God is holy and judges sin. Nowhere do, do, does God's holiness and, and condemnation of sin, of sin appear more vividly here than probably than in chapter 19. Look at chapter 19 because here we see the destruction of two cities, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroys two cities, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and He's showing that He is holy and He judges sin. Look at chapter 19, verse 24. 24 says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Now some people read these stories and they hate God because of those kind of stories. And some people read those stories and they say, well, that's not fair. 
Well, according to the Bible, may I remind you, God is the one who makes the rules. (laughs) And so as you stand before the creator of the universe, you and I have no ultimate rights. God is the one who creates everything, and he's the one who can justly destroy because he owns it, and he has the authority to do so. So Genesis teaches us that God is holy and judges sin. There's a classic example right there. But remember, remember, my friends, when you see God's judgment, look for his grace. Genesis also teaches us that God is merciful. For instance, in the midst of bringing all this terrible judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord is merciful to a man we just read about. God's merciful to Lot. Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at chapter 19, verse 16. Verse 16. This is talking about Lot. It says, but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. God sends his angels. He saves Lot and his his family. Look at verse 29, same chapter, chapter 19, verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. You see that, my friends, that God is merciful. He doesn't always give people what they deserve. Not always. Another example is found in chapter 38. And so here in chapter 38, we see God's redeeming grace. Let me fill you in on the context. The context is is about Judah. Judah, of course, the whole tribe of Judah ends up coming from this man. And Judah was an immoral man. He was immoral with his daughter-in-law. It's an ugly story. But God, nevertheless, was gracious in redeeming the outcome of the story, despite the man's sin. And so we learn, when we, when we come to Matthew chapter 1, that the promised seed of Abraham, who is Jesus, actually comes from this man's sin, is a result of this man's union with his daughter-in-law. And by the way, it is not that Judah's actions were okay. God's not justifying his sin, but nevertheless, God used this terrible situation to accomplish his purposes. He used these people to display his mercy and grace, and he takes the worst situations in people's lives, and he works them out for his glory and our good. Eventually, Christ comes from this union of Judah with his daughter-in-law. So I encourage you to read that whole chapter, chapter 38 sometime, and then see the connection. Read Matthew 1, and you'll see the genealogy of Jesus Christ going back to Judah. But we also learn from Genesis that it teaches us that God is sovereign. He is sovereign. Throughout these chapters, These, we, we, what do we learn about God? We, we find God's sovereignly working. For example, how does he do this? He he chooses Abraham. He could have chosen a lot of people, but who does he choose? He chooses Abraham. Who does he choose next? He chooses Isaac, not his brother Esau. And then he chooses Jacob, not his brother. Do you get the point? It just keeps going on and on. Another example is we see God, he prohibits King Abimelech from acting out his his affections toward Abraham's wife. Look at chapter 20. God is sovereign even over this. Chapter 20, verse 6 says, Then God said to him in the dream, that's Abimelech, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God's talking about Abraham's wife, Sarah. So God's the one 
who prohibited him from acting on his affection toward Abraham's wife. Notice what this sovereign God tells Abram years before it actually took place in chapter 15, verse 13. Chapter 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, if you want to find out if God actually kept His word, you have to read the second book in your Bible. Sorry, spoiler alert. If you've never read Exodus... That's what happens in the second book in your Bible. So read Exodus, and you'll find out if God was accurate and if God kept His promise. Does Israel escape Egypt with much possessions? Again, read Exodus. You'll find out what happens, okay? And so if you want to witness God's sovereign rule, it's very helpful to read the end of Genesis. You and I have studied together Joseph, particularly chapters 37 to 50. And it tells the story of this man named Joseph. And those chapters, you're going to see how God controls everything. He controls the future. We see God, how he, how he lets Joseph irritate his brothers so that they sell him to the Egyptians. And then Joseph goes down to Egypt. He gets sold to a man named Potiphar. And so he becomes a part of Potiphar's household so that Potiphar's wife could falsely accuse Joseph, so that Joseph could end up in prison. Why does God want Joseph in prison? Well, there he he planned to let Joseph be in prison so that he could be known as an interpreter of dreams. So God puts some of Joseph's, uh, sorry, the, the Pharaoh's servants in prison, and then he gives them dreams so Joseph can interpret those dreams so that they actually happen. And then they can go back to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh. And eventually Pharaoh finds out about Joseph and raises Joseph up to second in charge of Egypt. So so now we, we see Egypt has food. Why? So that Joseph's family can come to Egypt and be, can, they can become a great nation. And so that's just a pot balloon. It's okay. So, do you see how carefully God's planned all of this? None of that is an accident. And it's amazing, because God's done everything here from the tiniest thing to the biggest, and He's displaying His glory on every single page. And if you were to ask Joseph, what do you think about all this? (laughs) What do you think about all this, Joseph? I mean, hindsight's always nice. Well, if you want to know what Joseph thought about all this, look at chapter 50. We don't have to guess what Joseph thought about all of that because he he tells us right here in chapter 50, verse 18. Chapter 50, verse 18 says, His brothers also, that's Joseph's brothers, came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Hmm. There you go. Joseph believed in the sovereignty of God. All that bad, supposedly bad stuff that happened to him, God meant it for good. God was accomplishing His purposes. So what should our response be? We see a holy God who judges sin. We see yet a God who is merciful, but a God who reigns supreme over His creation. How do you respond to that kind of a God? Same as the first 11 chapters. Obedience and faith. And by faith, I mean trust. And the best example that you can, you can look at in the book of Genesis and, and, and possibly even in the entire Bible would be Abraham. 
You respond to God with obedience of faith, just like Abraham. Well, not just like him. Okay. doesn't mean you do everything that Abraham did, like the lying part, for example. But nowhere does justification by faith alone appear as clearly as it does in Abraham's life. And so God uses Abraham, even in the New Testament. The New Testament writers used Abraham quite a bit. For example, when they're writing about justification by faith alone in Romans chapters 4 and Galatians chapter 3, they used Abraham. And one of the verses they quote the most is Genesis 15. Look at Genesis 15, one of the most quoted verses in your entire Bible. Genesis 15, verse 6. You say, wow, I didn't, know, uh, I didn't know this verse was one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. Yes, look for it. Romans 4, Galatians 3. But here we are, Genesis 15, verse 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. By the way, that's Abraham, believed God. He put his faith and his trust in God. And then God gave him righteousness. That is a good example of obedience and faith. And if we judge by how the New Testament uses this verse, it it has to be one of the most important verses in your Bible. It's quoted a lot. Throughout Abraham's story, we see Abraham hearing God. God speaks to him. Abraham believes, Abraham obeys God's word. He obeys when God calls him to leave his father's house, to leave his land, to leave his country. Now, there's a lot of examples we could look at in Abraham's life, but one of the clearest examples of Abraham's faith has to be in chapter 22. In chapter 22, God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Isaac is his son of promise. Isaac is his only son from Sarah. That is incredible faith. And so Abraham hears it from God that he has to kill his son Isaac. And what does Abraham do? He actually plans it out. He plans out how he's going to sacrifice his son's life to God in obedience to God's command. And frankly, every time I read that, I I don't think I could have done that. It's disturbing to me to even think about plunging a knife through one of my children's hearts as they lay on a bunch of stones. It's disturbing. So my question for you is, how could he do that? Well, God answers that question for us in Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 17 here, when he says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speak, he did receive him back. Wow. That was Abraham's faith. Amazing. So he trusted God. In fact, he trusted God so much so that he believed that God could raise his son from the dead. So, this is what God wants. I'm going to kill my son, and God's going to bring him back to life. That's how much faith he had. He knew the one who created the world that made life, gave his son life, made his barren wife able to bear children, was able to do this. And that is a great example of obedience and faith. He took God at His word and acted upon it. And so, let me conclude this way. As we've thought about the main themes of the book of Genesis, I want to conclude by giving some just some, a few general comments. It's interesting, as you read this book... It may not be 
the kind of style you would expect from this amazing God. God seems to work through weak beginnings, as I put there on the screen for you. Weak beginnings are throughout this book, and it's amazing that God chose to bless the world through a nobody. A Middle Eastern nomad by the name of Abraham, an idolater, a no one. But God did not begin his great plan of redemption through the, the, the amazing civilizations of, the modern, of that, that day and time. God didn't choose China. God didn't choose Egypt. He didn't choose India. He chose a nobody from the Middle East. And that's where he begins, with this migrant family. And God's beginnings with this family are very insecure. God purposely shows their insecurity by showing three women who were barren. The line of Christ could have ended with each one of them. But yet, they're still in the line of Christ. Sarah gives birth. Rebecca gives birth. Rachel gives birth even though the Bible describes their wombs as barren. If they had never given birth, there would no be no Christ, and you and I would have no hope. And so, my friends, you see that God was up to something. He is fulfilling Genesis 3.15, that through the seed of the woman would come one who would crush Satan. God is making a point. God wanted it to be very clear that those promises that he made to Abraham and Abraham's descendants were not depending on Abraham because he's still a sinner. But those promises depended on God. And God wasn't going to share his glory with anyone else, including Abraham. And so my friends, have you realized that God is trustworthy and should be utterly obeyed in everything he promises? Have you realized that any prosperity and blessings that you are given is not because of your awesomeness. (laughs) It's not. It's not because of your great strength, your great power, or or anything else about you. It's not your intellect or whatever. And Genesis is written here to teach us this important truth. It's all about God. Genesis is a book of great contrast, though. So we see a lot of power. We see God's universal scope. Uh, There is great hope of life. Chapter 1 begins with these amazing words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's amazing. That's probably the best way that God could have started His Bible. But have you ever noticed how the book of Genesis ends? Look at the last verse of Genesis. The very last verse of Genesis. So we go from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth to the last book in Genesis, and it says, So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Wow. Is that a huge contrast or what? (laughs) Some some people could scratch their heads and look at this and say, "Uh uh-oh, Satan's won. Well, God's not doing what He said in in Genesis 3.15. No, 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 no. It's not the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent here. It seems the other way around. Satan looks like he's won. His rebellion against God's creation here seems to to have appeared to have succeeded. Death has touched all of Adam's sons. And we have the last hero of Genesis, who is Joseph, and he's dead. He's fading off the scene. And the book ends with a coffin. That's not good news, is it? However, there's one last hope. Where's the coffin? Notice it says the coffin is in Egypt. Egypt is the mightiest nation on earth at this time, and God puts one of the patriarchs in Egypt... And God's up to something yet again. (laughs) 
And God knew exactly where to plant His seed for His purposes. And it's in, in the next book in your Bible. you got to read that one to see what God's up to. In the book of Exodus, the stage is set for God's great drama of redemption where He's going to show the entire world that there is no nation on earth, even the mightiest nation as Egypt, can stand against this God. They have no hope against God. And He is going to utterly humble them and bring the greatest superpower to nothing because they can't stop Him from accomplishing His purposes. And So God leaves Joseph's coffin in Egypt and that's how the book of Genesis ends. But God's not done. God is fulfilling His purposes. God's business is not finished yet. And by the way, my friends, we can thank God that God is not finished with us either. The same God that worked with Joseph, same God works with you. And I love what Philippians says, chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you is going to complete it. The day of redemption, it's coming. He's not done with us. <laughs> and so we can thank God he's not yet finished today either. And so he's, he has more work that he's going to accomplish. This, this big, awesome, sovereign God is accomplishing his purposes. So, again, what should be our response? It's the same as in Genesis. Faith and obedience trust in this sovereign God and when he says something he makes promises you and I have to obey them we must obey them and that's it my friends you and I must trust and obey God are you doing that will you believe in this sovereign God who is merciful and holy and judges sin let's pray Heavenly Father thank you for revealing yourself, declaring who you are, that you have created everything and that you have raised up a nobody into an amazing nation and from Abraham all families of the earth are blessed. Thank you for giving us Jesus through Abraham. And may we understand that you are a holy God who judges sin, but yet... As we see your judgment fall, may we look for your grace. May we see you as a God who is in control and has all authority over heaven and earth. You are doing as you please. May we not believe in other things as more powerful than you. And so, may we respond by obedience and faith. May these examples in the Old Testament and in the book of Genesis encourage us toward obedience and faith. Give us this faith which we could never do for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.